Welcome back in listeners to another very special edition of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We have some fabulous guests joining us today, including a wonderful return. Joining us today, we have the playwright Roger Q. Mason, the director A. Boylan, and the dramaturg Gavin Trinidad, who are all a part of the upcoming reading of The Pink which is having the reading on Monday, April 3rd, 7 p.m. at 59E59 Theatres. What's great about this is that tickets are free, but please reserve your seats. And to do so and get more information, visit primarystages.org. But in the meantime, A, Gavin, welcome, welcome. And Roger, welcome back. So happy to have all of you here on Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you so much for having us, Andrew. You know, I always love talking to you. I am just excited to speak with all of you. When we were speaking before we started all this, I can already tell this is going to be a great, great interview. You all have a wealth of information, and the show sounds incredible. Roger, you are the playwright of the show, The Pink. (laughs) Yes. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the show? (laughs) where to begin in the the bedrooms of yore so the pink is um what I call an intimacy ritual I don't necessarily call it a play I call it an intimacy ritual meaning to say that it is a piece about the healing that intimacy can bring two characters over an evening and the, the short and dirty answer is that the piece is about two queer people of color who spend an evening together, a one night stand, so to speak, that lasts until the morning after. And it is simultaneously a a recording of some slightly real events that have occurred in my own romantic life, but also an imagining of the kind of intimacy and, and the kind of healing through intimacy that I think we all crave whenever we step through the threshold of a door and unclothe ourselves (laughs) that sounds very deep and very vulnerable vulnerable ah yes (laughs) that is the word the word that came up in my head was titillating but yes vulnerable is great as well (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned this this is somewhat coming from a place of truth but how did you come up with the idea for the show roger Really, you you can blame Audra McDonald. I was I, I remember watching the production that she and Michael Shannon did of Frankie and Johnny at the Clear de Lune. And I was so taken aback by the vulnerability of these two characters who were just we were spending essentially two hours and some change with two people fumbling around the exchange of bodies and fluids and ideas over the course of an evening and through that experience, we learned not only about them, but about all of humankind, what makes us tick, what we want, what we dream of, what we yearn. I think the bedroom is the place where we are our most raw because we are literally unsheathed. And so I I thought to myself, I think queer folks ought to have this story. We ought to have our version of this story. And so, you know, it's it's sort of inspired by a tradition of two-handers about intimacy 
written between the 90s and the early 2000s. I think, what was it? Claire de Lune was in the late 80s or the early 90s. You know, sort of that era. I think about there were quite a few plays written in that period that were two-hander, two-hander realism pieces. And I, I, I believe that we were due for an update. And who better to do the updating than me? And where better to draw the material than my own memory of the things that have gone right and the things that have gone wrong while pursuing true love. <laughs> I love it. Now I want to bring our other two guests in, Gavin and A, and I want to ask you both, what has it been like developing this show? And Gavin, since you're the dramaturg, why don't I start with you on that one? I have to say, I so I've been a collaborator of Roger for a few years. We started during the shutdown, remember, Roger? We were working on another piece called Waiting for a Wake, and it just started off with conversations about, not even about the play, but about each other. And we got to know each other very, very well. And for the pink in particular, I just remember Roger said, I have another play, <laughs> you should read this. And I remember reading the first draft and I was just so blown away about the questions of what is intimacy and what is the need for intimacy for these two folks in a world that was not made for them. Not only are they queer, but also they're folks of color. And, you know, often in our readings, or I'll, I'll, I'll speak about my own, I identify as a cub and to watch folks who identify as a bear or a hunk or folks outside of the mainstream gay, cis, twink, twunk, city, circuit party community to watch these folks who are who may identify in the outer margins of mainstream gay, not necessarily queer communities, this continued search for affirmation in each other, but for themselves. And I'm always so blown away by the, I say the radical generosity that they both have to learn to give to themselves. And so it's just been truly a blessing to be with Roger and A in this process because you know, part of the dramaturgy is not just looking at the structure of the play, but also inspiring each other to continue to look in ourselves and finding that into the characters and also affirming Roger's impulses. In grad school, we would always create a list of like, what is a dramaturg? And the one that was always in top at the top of the list was drama therapist for the playwright and director and for the fellow artist but if you go it goes beyond being a therapist it also is being a friend and so I feel so so lucky to be in the room with these two wonderful artists that is so lovely bringing our other guest in a you are the director what has it been like developing the pink as the director I want to echo what Gavin was just like expressing about this piece being so shaped by, as it should be, by a, a relationship to not only Roger's work, but being in process with Roger. Roger, you and I met exchanging plays about queer childhood, right? We, we met exchanging plays that were about being vulnerable on the page and how to put ourselves on the page. And it feels something like fate that when you were talking about the idea of this play, we both thought of that conversation from several years ago. And I think that there's something about 
this play and the ritual surrounding it, because that's really what it is, as Roger said, that's really the shape of the work is this ritual that includes the characters in the story, but also the artists who are collaborating and telling it, and hopefully also the witnesses who come and become a part of the ritual as well in that way, that there is something still profoundly radical about seeing yourself reflected in both concrete and abstract forms. Like this is something I have said a lot in a lot of different rooms that I'm in, but especially with very cool, hip, expressionistic artists where queerness is not a metaphor. Queerness is a real lived experience. It is concrete. It lives in our bodies. It is something that is as varied and wide ranging as we are individuals. And yet it is also something by which we understand sometimes kinship and connection and familiarity. And so there is something really, really, really radical about acknowledging that and also allowing it to be transcendent. And that is something that I think if you've ever met Roger Q. Mason, you know, <laughs> they bring that concretely and transcend it. <laughs> that is like definitively the thing. They so yeah, color. affirming that. <laughs> yes, I love all that. So we have this beautiful piece, this intimate piece put on and and directed, dramaturg by all you wonderful people. What is the message or thought that you all are hoping the audiences will take away from it? And I want to start with Gavin on this one. Uh, my impulse was that is is that you know love call comes in multiplicities there's so many def definitions of what love is and stealing the from bell hooks it's okay to be obsessed with love i think what these two characters are doing you know they first meet on an app not and this is what i'm posing based on my experience not knowing exactly what they want and trying to figure out what roles they're expecting to play in this game of dating, a foreplay of a one night stand. And I just, I guess I want people, especially queer folks, like you, you have to, you can create your own path on what that means. And there will be someone out there who understands that, you know, because I love, I love me a one and done sometimes, but there is always that search for something else. And it's always something wonderful when you just by chance that one night you meet someone who's searching for the same thing and questioning the same thing lovely i love that let's bring in our wonderful playwright roger roger what's the message or thought you're hoping the audiences take you, away you know queer intimacy is about patience we have developed an impatience around instant gratification, particularly sexual gratification. And I think that social media, and I think that OnlyFans and other such materials, which get us to the climax of a moment and then leave us dangling there aroused, leave much to be remembered about what happens when we connect with people hmm. in intimate settings. You know, the sexual act, even if it is a one night stand, is so much less about penetration and friction and so much more about pouring yourself 
into all of the different universes that one person or several, however you, whatever you're doing, can hold for that evening and being able to let it go the next day. You know, you, we invested, we, we created an entire world for ourselves in one night, a city of desire we created. And for one night it was full and it was beautiful. And tomorrow we may not speak to each other again. And you have to hold yourself through that moment. How do I pick up the pieces of myself that I gave away or lent to somebody or gave to somebody and take what's left? And also they poured something into me. And how do I allow that to enrich me further? And I think that our lovers are our greatest teachers because we learn about our most earnest self in those moments, what we really are like, how we deal with discomfort, how we seek pleasure, how kind and generous are we to other people? Because honey, you may be done, but uh, they haven't finished yet. And you have to, you owe them, (laughs) you owe them the time that they gave you. And sometimes we become very selfish in this world. Well, I'm done. Thanks. Bye. That's not how life works either in the bedroom or outside of it. But I think those are some of the things that we learn. And what, what I want, what I want people to take from the play, you know, perhaps thematically is that love takes grace and grace requires patience and time. And you will find somebody. You just have to start with yourself really. And I think at the end of the day, what this is, is about two people finding themselves in each other and then going on. That's beautiful. I love that. A, as the director, what is the message or thought that you're hoping the audiences will get from from the work? I love this thought about patience. And I think that there's something of time belonging to ourselves, something of time being queering time, queering the way we move through it, the way we experience it, the way it's delivered to us, the way we are delivered through it. This is part of, I think, something that goes into the craftsmanship conversations that the three of us have shared and the way we share process and the way we're patient with each other and share time together. Because this piece has been cooking for a minute and that's a that's a beautiful thing. But I also think it's very defined by and shaped by that patience that Roger speaks about. That is also a very inherently queer thing. I also think, I like to think of myself as a director in these kinds of development processes, very much like a midwife, in that I am here to help and facilitate and take care as we are finding the thing as it's emerging. But also one of the most important things I can do in the room is offer that reassurance, not just to Roger and and Gavin and and our other collaborators, but also to the audience coming to to witness it and share it together. And I think that is made a lot easier by the fact that this is a text that has care in every word and every syllable, that because it's led by patience, it offers an invitation to those who come and share in its ritual to say, yeah, I'm going to be patient with myself as I wade through what this ritual can do for me and with me. And maybe it's also a little bit about me. So yeah, time, that time doesn't just belong to the characters. It also belongs to you. 
you all are just giving phenomenal answers and I could just like sit here and and just listen to all of you talk more and more about this show this way. It's absolutely beautiful. For the final question in this first part of the interview, I want to ask you all, who do you hope have access to the show? And A, I'd like to start with you on that. Oh, I mean, I I think this is a play for family. This is a this is a play for our communities. This is a play for for queer people, for trans people, for black and brown people, for for fat people, for 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 all the different variations of patients that is described in specificity through the voices of these characters. But then also, I think it's for everyone else too. I think this is a play for anyone who doesn't see themselves concretely reflected in these characters to find transcendence through their intimacy, to find the invitation of their humanness to be something that is both so specifically defined by who they are and also open to what tomorrow brings and how they move through the world. So I hope people feel like they can be invited to be a part of that world with them. Yes. Gavin, how about you? It's so funny. When you asked that question, I had two demographics in mind. I was thinking first of, of course, like L, like LGBT youth, queer youth, TJNC youth who grew up with the internet and apps in which the way they connect is a very particular thing. And I may be generalizing. I'm 10 years older than my sibling. And so I am an old millennial while he is a Gen Zer. And it's very fascinating how, for me, because I'm not familiar with it as much, this searching via photographs, via words in which people can perform their fantasy on Tinder or on Hinge, on Grinder or Scruff or Growler. And I, I hope this intimacy ritual opens up a door for them to discover for themselves what that means, where touch is involved, where it's more than just a transaction of time and time is just not linear and gratification is not always certain. Intimacy is funny. Things go wrong in intimacy. You have to work it out. And the other group I was thinking about immediately after was an older generation of LGBT folk when I think of intimacy, I always think of the lost generation of folks who had passed from HIV AIDS and how those who survived are now passing passing away from old age and what intimacy means to them, having witnessed loss. And so whatever happens, I, I want this piece and I feel strongly that it's one of the few pieces in which you can have an intergenerational experience within the LGBT community to search what that means. We've fought so much to be, to find freedom in many ways, and there's still much of fight, but that's my hope and dream for this play. And bringing this home, Roger. I think this is America's play. And I mean that because we are at a major crossroads about access to information around identities and desires right now. We have a conservative set, which is trying to use distraction-based politics to fuel 
their constituents around an anxiety with lifestyles that are alternative to the prescribed norm. And I've said all of that very specifically. But really, those anxieties are being invented in order to distract that population from the real disparities that they are being a victim to, disparities of education, disparities of medical care, disparities of fair taxation, disparities of quality of life. People are drinking colored water, you know? And so it's easy to point the finger at, hey, look over there. That's what's ruining your society. And we have seen this over and over again in the erosive history of our nation. We've seen scapegoats being used to distract the population from the real problem at hand. What you do when you censor people, particularly young people, from the wide array of lived experiences that humanity has to offer. You render them myopic and ignorant, and you cheat them out of the chance to learn what it's like to live in someone else's shoes. You might learn, if you see how that person lives, that their desires, hopes, dreams, fears are not different from yours. While this particular couple in this play is a queer couple, they could truly be anybody who has ever wanted to be touched and feel special and loved and unique and beautiful in the world. Those are uniquely and strongly human desires that everyone can identify with. So I hope that this play reaches all of the demographics that Gavin and A mentioned but I also hope that it, that it hits folks who may not have access to this if they weren't allowed to come. I hope that it hits the zeitgeist at large because I think we need to normalize queerness in order to really revitalize our own relationship to vulnerable selfhood in this country. Who we are and how we treat those of us that we are different from is a reflection of our social mores as a population. These two individuals in this play are broken by a society that has tried to censor them and shame them and ridicule them for who they are and how they love in this world. And they come together in this ritual to heal from all of the wounds that are exacted upon them by the world. Their love affair is not just a grasp and a desire for intimacy, but also a prayer to be revitalized and renewed through the power of mutual touch because they know what it's like to have been through this hell called the modern world. And it's a bond that is solidified through touch, but reverberates through every aspect of their being and rather every aspect of all humanity's being. I think when you look at stories of romance, the reason why they last in the zeitgeist is because they are the most universally understood metaphorical manifestations of human dreams. I just want to be somebody. I want somebody to tell me I'm beautiful. I want to feel important tonight. Everybody can relate to that. So I'm really hoping that, that this piece is able to do well, not only at this reading, but also 
have a life in New York and then have a life around the country afterwards and, and the world for, for goodness sakes. Because I think what we deserve to see is examples of how love gets it right for people, how love is, is, is medicine and a healing for the human soul. And that's the universal truth of the pink. want to give our listeners a chance to get to know the three of you a little bit more and i want to kick off this second part of the interview by asking what shows playwrights or composers in the past have inspired you or some of your favorite and david i'm going to start with you on this yes of course i'm thinking of writers i fell in love in my teens with tennessee williams Mm. and i think why Roger and I <laughs> connected many, very in, in a lot of ways is not just Tennessee's poeticism, but there is a yearning for something more. He's always grasping at much. He's always grasping for love. And I remember reading Tennessee's memoirs in my junior year of high school and in many ways painting the tragedy of his love life I guess I uh, may be that I'm painting my own I'm imposing but <laughs> my read but then through Tennessee Williams I discovered his love of Chekhov and how Chekhov deeply inspired him and even to a point where Tennessee did his own adaptation version of the seagull and within those characters also especially in Constantine, a searching for approval and love from parental figures in the, while in the pursuit of art and the lack of support. And then, I mean, I read a lot of, so I was an American studies major and German minor. And so in American studies, it was a lot of Matilda Sycamore Bernstein, who is a trans writer who talked about and broke apart for me, like, the structural, the systematic racism and gender bias, even within LGBTQ communities. And it brought me into a place where I can talk and look at the world in a more intersectional lens and how all of the facets of one's identities play a role in how they are seen and how they see themselves. And that, that I find myself continuously going back to the works I had studied in women, gender studies and American studies within my own practices in theater. And then in German, Brecht. Brecht was what brought me to dramaturgy. I was sitting abroad in Germany and I was wondering who the F is this person who is like talking to the cast for a week about like just the history and the theories and the ideas and just seeing a cast, well, a particularly a German, uh, a German cast talking about like enemy of the people for a week. And I was wondering, we haven't even gotten to our feet. And I discovered how for myself, how this person really moved the spirit of the room with the director and other collaborators. And I discovered he was the dramaturg of the, of the theater in that town, in that city. And so it became a pursuit of me to learn what a dramaturg was and to become one. 
and also being AAPI, Asian American, specifically first-generation Filipino-American, I learned that dramaturgs are also advocates for folks behind the scenes and how important that was because I also stopped being a regional theater actor in musical theater once I did a regional premiere of Mary Poppins tap dancing for three hours on a two-story house on stage. I remember after that run, I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to tap dance anymore. But yeah, you could ask Roger. I still sing once in a while with Roger. We got some jazz hits together, right? We have our renditions. Those are the folks who have really moved me. And New York actors. I'm a kid of the East Village. So I'm so excited to, in many ways, acting. Not acting, I wish. Doing shows with the heroes that I always found on the stages of La Mama in the East Village Theater for a New City. So, yeah. Roger, let's go to you next. You know, I never remember what I say. That's the wonderful thing about me. It's it's all in the moment and then it'll be gone. And, and these two beautiful humans know that. That's why there's quite a copious note-taking system that happens when I'm in the room because uh, literally we're jamming and it happens and then it's gone. And when it's gone, honey, it's gone because I, I move on. That's the beauty of living living in the present moment is you just don't remember this shit. So today, my inspirations today. Well, we're on this show with one of them, A Boylan. A has a show called Virgo and they were mentioning that it was a, a coming of age piece. And I, I came to learn of that play at a time when I was working on my own piece called The White Dress. And similar to A's Virgo, I was dealing with on stage physicality and duration performance exercise as plot or non-plot really and i just remember reading the 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 frontispiece of a's play basically saying this piece numerically is 30 pages but page length is not indicative of performance time and sort of advocating for this queer elongation of time this almost stretching of time that language will only be one component of this tour that we will take through the stage and that there is something to be said for ritual and reading that play was like finding a kindred spirit for me because up until that point I I had been doing and I don't really do a lot of cold submissions anymore I've got to warm you up before I send you my shit because I don't have time for the rejection letters and, and not because I don't want to play the game or I don't respect it. I respect the game. You know, there's great honor. You know, we as supplicant scribes, we package our little things and we've spent all of this time with them and we send them off with the best of intentions, hoping that somebody on the inside of these readers rooms will feel what we felt and advocate for us with their supervisors and the piece will rise up and hopefully get to the lit manager's desk. And of course, when I was first starting out, I didn't realize all of the different layers of readership that went into a piece and the taste factor that, in, that, that determines who gets read and who doesn't. I had no idea about the politics of it. But I used to get clocked a lot early on because I would use physicality on stage in stage direction as story points. And people in our business 
I think this is turning and I've certainly done my damn part to turn it. I've done some thought leadership pieces, both in some of our trade magazines. And of course, at any interview I get, I say this. And so I'll say it again, that playwriting is a blueprint for a larger performance event. Say it again. Playwriting is a blueprint for a larger performance event. The text is but a component of the information that you are providing. But unfortunately, the way that merit is issued in our business is through submission of the literary manifestation of a text. So oftentimes a writer will solve problems or seek validation of their work through submitting the script, meaning to say the script has to please the reader in immediately gratifying and digestible ways. And of course, one of the most recognizable ways that people feel like they got a script is through what people say. They read the dialogue. Well, you know, much like Hitchcock who says, let me write the story and then I'll sprinkle a little dialogue on it later. I think dialogue is perhaps the last sort of mechanism of a story because you're writing a performance text. So it's someone doing something somewhere. I had a teacher in, in middle and high school, Joe Harper. Hey, Mr. Harper. And Mr. Harper said, acting is someone doing something somewhere. Well, if you're writing for the actor, then you're writing action. You're writing dramatic action. You're writing the pursuit of a particular goal. Now, there are many means by which to achieve a goal. One of them is to flap my lips and talk. But that's not the only one. And for many people, that's certainly not the, the dominant one. So reading A's work sort of invited me into a club, so to speak, of writers who knew better <laughs> than to rely exclusively on dialogue. And so that brings me to my other inspirations, which I'm inspired by my relationship with with Gavin, I promised you I would explain the dramaturgy relationship. You see, I do not believe that the writer is the only writer in a process. I believe that life is the writer, that we are constantly conjuring material from our lived experience, that we're eavesdropping conversations, we're watching scenes in a park two miles away. We're looking at magazines, we are listening to a song, we are showering ourselves after an evening gone wrong. And all of that is inspiration for the work, but also we learn from our collaborators. We are collage artists, you know? And so you learn from directors, you learn from dramaturgs, you learn from designers, they're the great teachers. And I think the relationship that I have with Gavin is as a co-conspirator and curator. Because what we do is we conjure. And many times it's oral, it's, it's oral tradition, because I'll get on a vibe and I'll just start, I'll just start singing, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, scat style. I'll, I'll start scatting a play to you. And Gavin will sit down and notated and see Gavin has already let you know that they're a musician so they know what it is all right now let me transcribe and then we go from there and then we see what comes out of it and I wait until that moment where I know what's going to happen sometimes it's six minutes sometimes it's six months 
until I know what a play is. But to have somebody that understands that way of playmaking and be able to hold you and catch you sometimes is inspirational. And, and A does the same. That's why this team works. And this is the beauty of Chosen Family, which is a manifestation of queerness, is that we all know this anti-hierarchical and fluid relationship to story making. Now, the other two inspirations that I would want to say are, number one, when I'm not writing a play, you will see me at the Joyce because I, I learn a lot from dance. And you will see me at, at any given Philharmonic because I learn a lot from music. What can we do to move the human spirit in the absence of language? What are those sublime elements of the condition of humankind? which are so mystical that they elude language. So much so that you have to move or you have to play an instrument or you have to sing because I can't talk about this. When you start dealing in that kind of story making, you are now using every element of this craft available to you and beyond. You have moved into a sort of magical, metaphysical space of storytelling. You've returned to the spiritual connotations of playwriting. You've returned to ancient Egypt. You've returned to Rome. You've returned to Athens at that point, because now you know that I'm serving a higher power. And sometimes that power has to speak through me in ways that my language, which is a manifestation of my materiality, can no longer hold. I gotta just move, I gotta feel it. Gavin and I are in a writer's group and they said, they called me a conjurer yesterday that I'm just feeling my way through. I'll take it. I think that's right because there is something mystical that happens. And so a process for me that goes well is one that embraces the alchemy of how I make meaning through curating the lived experience that I have been fortunate enough to behold in this lifetime. Well, rounding on the question, A, who are your inspirations? I love the word inspiration being used here. And as Roger uses it, I just want to name, because we're in this space, we're in this little nerdy academic noodle brain space. Etymologically, right? Inspiration means to breathe, to take a new breath. And that is exactly what Roger's describing. The people that inspire me, the artists that I share breath with, remind me where I am, how I am, who I am, and what can become our next moment together, right? This is where I, I mean to say it's not just the metaphor, it's the concrete and the transcendence of that moment. Some people who have changed me, I think we all share Tennessee Williams as a reference point, but listen, I'm moving beyond him right now. I'm, I'm leaving him to the side for a moment. <laughs> I don't need him in the way that I did when I was 16. Some people that I that have given me breath and I felt like I've shared breaths with their work, they have changed me because there's a lot of smart, wonderfully uh, creative people out there who are huge influences, but people who have like, taught me to breathe in new ways. Alicia Harris, Whitney White, Aya Ogawa, Enda Walsh, Shikina Nafak, and 
Roger Q. Mason and Gavin Trinidad among those people as well. These are all people who I could talk about for hours, but I'll say in brief, they all care about ritual. They all care about the people who are in the room. They all listen. They know that that's not just a, a comfort or a, a luxury or a privilege, but it is a concrete truth that when we gather together in a space and we share breath together, that that is a life giving essential resource. That is a form of humanness. That is a form of living. That is a form of survival when in another space, we might not be able to take another breath, but together we do. And that becomes the subject matter of our work as much as it is characters on a page in literature that people are reading in the abstract to figure out if maybe they can make that a budget line in their season programming. That is not our work. Our work is in the room together. So also just very specifically, Learning How to Read by Moonlight, which is a play that Gavin made recently, was the most recent example of that because my body shook and took breath in new ways and it was gorgeous, but I could, I could speak about that for hours, but I'm just naming that now. That's got to come up again sometime. That play's got to, got to reemerge. I am loving all of all of your answers. This is incredible, and so I'm so glad we've come to my favorite question because I can't wait to hear your answers. Which is, what is your favorite theater memory? And a, I would love to start with you, if I may. Okay, I just spoke in a very, uh, <laughs> in a very, <laughs> uh, let's say, uh, if if you didn't know me very well, a pretentious way about all this stuff. Let's be honest. I was 13 and I saw Elphaba go up in the sky and it was great. <laughs> I have I have no, how do you say, uh, false aspersions about what that was for me. It was moving, it was everything. I needed to see a green girl go up in the sky and defy gravity. That That's, that's one of the most. <laughs> I cried during intermission and for 24 hours afterwards. And my parents thought I was broken and I was. It just was, it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. That that reignited my spark to get out here to the city. So you're not alone. <laughs> Gavin, what is one of your favorite theater memories? Yeah, so one of the memories that I hold dear to my heart is bringing my siblings. So we're t- I'm 10 years older. I was 16 and he was probably six. And I brought him to his first Broadway show which I waited for rush tickets for Disney's Tarzan and we got front row center seats and this little kid my brother at that time you know he didn't like fairy tales he didn't like the magic school bus he loved science things that he felt were concrete even though he loved Tom's the Tank Engine don't read him the stories because he would instantly say that's not real and so bringing the small six-year-old boy to Broadway where, you know, it's fantasy in many ways. The first thing he said when we sat down, he said, that's not a real vine, that's a rope. And, and so this is where what we're playing with. And by the time, I think it was like the third scene where we've already watched, I can't believe I'm using this show, but I, I will continue. Baby Tarzan, we've seen kid Tarzan just be mistreated. And then Mama Gorilla Tarzan is like, takes his hand, is like, what's this? Your hand, what's this? My hand. 
and then what takes Tarzan's hand and says, what's this? Your heart. And then she puts his hand on his heart. It's like, what's this? My heart. And then you hear the Phil Collins song, you'll be in my heart. But I remember at that moment before they started singing, my six-year-old brother tugging on my coat. And I turned to, I turned to him and he is crying. And so to see the six-year-old boy understand the emotional depth of what is happening, it, it just reminded me and it continuously reminds me of how transformational theater is, no matter what theater. And if it takes place on the street, in a concert hall, on the subway, if you're in New York, um, <laughs> you know, any moment you know, there, there is that six-year-old kid in us who has to cry and we see ourselves. And so I always hold that to my heart. Very quickly, another, we, we also saw the Broadway revival of, what's the show, friends, where they're like, they're singing and we're like, hey, we're on the phone. Duh, the 1950s. Bye Bye Birdie? Yes, bye Bye Birdie. Okay. We see a bye Bye Birdie. And we were in, we were there with my first boyfriend. I was 18. So he's, He's eight now. And we're in a box seat with my boyfriend at that time. And we were watching Bye Bye Birdie. And there's a point where the John Stamos slash Dick Van Dyke character is fighting with his mother. And his mother makes a quip being like, you made me so mad. I won't talk to you. I won't even like, and lying and joking. is like, I won't even tell you the incurable disease I have. And my brother, without missing a beat in a quiet Broadway theater, says very loudly from our box seats, she must have diabetes. And I'm like, Avery. I feel like I'm looking at my little brother. I was like, okay, I love this call and response, but maybe not at this moment before they start singing. But that is something I also hold dear to my heart because the plays I love to attend to have call and response. And that also, it was a visceral moment for him. And so I hold that dear to my heart. That just shows how into the show he was, though. That's amazing. Bringing us home, Roger. I can't wait. What is one of uh, your theater memories? <laughs> one of the memories I have is I, I want to reiterate A's point about Gavin's work. You know, they just did a showing of How to Learn by Moonlight, but also are writing a lot of other pieces right now that use the heart chakra as a guiding principle. And I think writing from a place of loving kindness is a radical act, especially in a world that is trying to silence and disenfranchise people. So I think that watching Gavin come into their voice as, as this sort of healer through love as a playwright, that is a theatrical event that that I think is is noteworthy. I thought of a few instances that were important to me and I wanted to share them. One of them was watching Zoe Wanamaker, Zoe Wanamaker at the National Theater of London in Rose Tattoo run and catch a goat on a revolving stage where it was her apartment and then the rest of the of the town was going in the other direction. What can't she do? <laughs> and, and and what I mean to say by that is, you know, Tennessee Williams for me is about the relationship to place as a character. 
that's my way into Tennessee. Yes, you know, we have fabulous women characters. It's all about desires of love and broken winged birds and all of those sort of things that normally people talk about. But what people don't talk about is the stage directions and the ways in which place is a character in those plays. Because Tennessee came out of the expressionist movement of the 30s and early 40s. He understood that place was character and that people were really subject to their environments. You know, I'm very influenced by place. If a room doesn't have the right vibe, I got to go. I can't take it. And that's just what I'm realizing as I age is I've got to find the right room because otherwise the, the energy's off. The other memory that I remember, and I think this is a good way to bring us home, is I remember the first time I, as 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 young adult, saw intimacy depicted on stage was in Bill T. Jones's production of Spring Awakening. That scene in the barn where Jonathan Groff and, and Leah Michelle are are consummating their lust for each other. And then the barn starts to levitate. But to see intimacy depicted, to see the actual ritual of two people pursuing each other physically on a stage inspired me to want to explore in my playwriting life the power that, that love, that romance, and that intimacy have in the human experience. I saw that when I was, what, 19, 20 years old. And many, many years later, almost two decades later, I still remember that moment. And I'm still showing intimacy on stage. I've been doing it since I started in this business. And I will continue doing it forever and a day because I, I stand behind the power of what is revealed about human nature when we are in our most vulnerable and pleasure-seeking and honest place. On our backs, as Blanche Devereaux would say. <laughs> That's why we need plays that speak honestly about desire because when censored, we will erode. Yes. And Roger, that is a perfect setup to one of my final questions, which is, do any of you have any projects or productions that we can plug outside of the incredible play, The Pink? I'm I'm currently directing and developing a number of new works for readings this spring, but also am cooking up some stuff I can't talk about right now that I'm really excited about. Maybe in the summer and fall, I'll be able to talk more about it, but yeah. I'm in a similar place with A. I'm also just writing new plays and in, in the same room as Roger for we're, we're two new Mai theater labbies. And so we are on a, a writer's retreat right now. And so our last day is tomorrow. And it's been quite lovely to be in the same room with Roger and our fellow AAPI theater makers. And, you know, Roger and I, uh, we got some other things coming up, but I'll, I'll pass it on to Roger. So there's the pink which is April 3rd at 7 p.m. at 59 East 59th. There's also a reading of my other play, Waiting for Awake, a post-kitchen sink drama, which is being presented by Page 73 Productions at Open Jar. And that's on Friday, April 21st at 4 p.m. That you can keep on my Instagram to find out more information about that soon. I... Cannot say the place yet, but I will soon be making my regional theater debut. 
So I'm very excited about that. And then in addition, I am returning to Chicago with a project that will be announced later on next year. And aside from those sort of points that I know about, I have a couple of new plays and a play with music about New Orleans that I'm developing. And we will hear more about those as they arise and as showings arise. But I am very happily booked and blessed and happy to be sharing stories with our business and those who patronize it. Amazing. I am all abuzz. I, this interview has left me wanting to read all of your works. Just sit there on the subway, ride the one train all day and just sit there and read it. I'm, I'm just, you've picked up a fan, but this is my final question to ask. And I, and I'm excited to hear it so that we can pass it on to our listeners, which is if our listeners want more information about the pink or about any of you, perhaps they want to reach out to you. How can they do so? I'm not really on social media, but I am on Instagram at E-R-A, my last name, B-O-Y-L-A-N, on Instagram. You can find me there or at my website, www.eboylan.com. Gavin? I'm also rarely on social media. It's like once once a year I'm there to promote a show. But if you would like to, maybe you're lucky I would be on IG. Um, if you go to the gram and look for at NYC Wonder Wanderer, I'll pop up. It's a private, <laughs> it's a private profile, but maybe I'll say yes. But if you would like to contact me, you could easily contact me via my website, Gavin, G-A-V-E-N, Trinidad, T-R-I-N-I-D-A-D, theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot com. GavenTrinidadTheater.com. And finally, Roger. Meanwhile, I'm all over the, the Instagram. And I got my business out in the street because I, I tell it all. So the best way to get in contact with me and find out what's going on is through Instagram. And my handle is at RogerQ.Mason. That's R-O-G-E-R, the letter Q for Quincy, dot Mason, M-A-S-O-N. And you can DM me and, and I always respond and I'm always happy to hear from folks. Wonderful. Hey, Gavin, Roger, thank you all so much for joining me today. This has been one of the most fun, intelligent, inspirational, just amazing interviews I've gotten to have. So thank you all so much. Thanks for hanging around a little long with me. You all are incredible. Keep doing the amazing work you're doing. And I hope to see you all at the pink. So thank you so much. Thank you. My guests today have been the playwright Roger Q. Mason, director A. Boylan, and the dramaturg Gavin Trinidad, all who were part of the show The Pink, having a reading Monday, April 3rd at 7 p.m. at 59E59 Theaters. Tickets are free, but again, you have to reserve your seats, and to reserve your seats or get more information, visit primarystages.org. You can also follow our guests or reach out to them. We'll have all of that contact info listed in the episode description, as well as on our social media. These are artists you are going to want to follow and keep track of. They're going to do huge things. I mean, they've already done huge things, but they're going to continue to change the world 
you want to be involved in it. So make sure to check out The Pink Monday, April 3rd. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.